Our passage for this morning's sermon is Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Again, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. That well known passage of the temptation of the Lord Jesus. This is God's Word. Please listen to it attentively. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, He was hungry. And the tempter came and said to Him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But He answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to Him. Let us pray. Thank You, O Lord, for Your Word and for the passage that You have laid before us this morning. We ask, O Lord, that You would teach us. Teach us what it means for Christ to have been tempted on our behalf and to have succeeded this test, to have passed the test, O Lord. Teach us what it means for Him to have died and been resurrected on our behalf and to have passed that test, O Lord. And help us, O Lord. When we are tempted, we pray that we would respond in the same manner as the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In last week's passage, we read about Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist. And you read that John the Baptist's baptism, it was a baptism of repentance. And so we ask the question, what is Jesus doing receiving a baptism of repentance? He is a man who was without sin because he is fully God while at the same time fully man. Why did he have a baptism of repentance? And we determined that it was because He stood as our substitute. When He he received that baptism of repentance, He was receiving it on our behalf, on all people's behalf, who placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He was repenting for us. He was doing that for us which we could not do for ourselves. In addition, He was standing as a substitute. He was becoming that sacrificial Lamb of God who would go to the cross on our behalf to take away the sins of the world. 
Well, Matthew, throughout his gospel, will continue to show that Jesus' entire public ministry, in fact, his entire life, but his entire public ministry, which began at his baptism, was one in which Jesus substituted. He stood in the place of us. We who are God's people. And nowhere is this seen more clearly than in Jesus' death on the cross. Think about this, that the sinless Son of God should die on the cross. It's unthinkable. It doesn't make sense, except when we understand that He was dying in our place on the cross, that He was substituting Himself and His perfect righteousness for us. You see, Jesus identified with us. He represented us both in His baptism and in His crucifixion. And we'll see in our passage this morning that Jesus represents us during His time of, uh, of temptation, His time of testing in the wilderness. And so I would ask you as we make our way through these 11 verses to think about this. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness so that through His death and resurrection, sinners like you and me are able to resist the devil to the very end of our lives. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness so that through His death and resurrection, sinners like you and me are able to resist the devil to the end of our lives. Scripture says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. That is only the case because Jesus Christ resisted him in your place. And he resisted the devil to the point of death on the cross. Well, I've divided our passage up into four sections this morning. Verses 1 to 2, put to the test. Verses 3 to 7, if you are the Son of God. Verses 8 to 11, if you will worship me. And then verses 4, 6, 7, and 10, it is written. Again, put to the test, verses 1 to 2, if you are the Son of God, verses 3 to 7. If you will worship me, verses 8 to 11, and it is written. Verses 4, 6, 7, and 10. So let's look at this first section, put to the test, verses 1 to 2. Verse 1, verse one says that after Jesus was baptized, He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now it is important that we remember who led Jesus into the wilderness. Was it Satan who led Him there? No. The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It was God who took the initiative. Satan has no power over Jesus. Satan had no authority over Jesus to lead Him or pull Him into the wilderness to be tempted. The Spirit had just descended upon Jesus. The Father had just proclaimed that Jesus was His beloved Son in whom He is well pleased. And then the Holy Spirit led Him away to the wilderness like that scapegoat, that sacrificial lamb, like the one who would go out in the wilderness bearing our sins. And the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness for the express purpose of being tempted by the devil. Now we need to understand this word that's translated here as tempted. It can also be translated as test or prove. And you can see that even in the word tempt. From from Satan's standpoint, yes, he was tempting the Lord Jesus. But from Jesus' standpoint, as the Son of God, God was testing him. He was proving him. He was sending him through the refining fires of that temptation in uh, in the desert, in the wilderness. And so it was the Father's plan for His Son to undergo a period of testing. And Satan could only work within the confines of the will of God. He could only work within the parameters that the Lord had set out for him. And so Jesus went out into the wilderness 
by himself to be tested by the devil. Now verse 2 says that he was there 40 days and 40 nights before Satan came to tempt him. In Numbers chapter 16, verses 32 to 35, we read that because of Israel's refusal to enter Canaan, after Joshua and Caleb and the other spies had gone in to spy out the land, because they refused, God punished them. He caused the Israelites to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. One year for every day that the spies were in Canaan. And now Jesus is going into the wilderness to spend one day for every year that the, the Israelites wandered in the wilderness because of their sin. He is once again showing that He is true Israel by succeeding where Israel failed. Now imagine this. Imagine spending 40 days in the wilderness by yourself. Imagine that. To most of us, that would seem like a lifetime. To some of us, that is our worst fear in life is to be by ourselves, much less be by ourselves for 40 days in the wilderness, no shelter. But what made the 40 days a great challenge for Jesus was the fact that He fasted for 40 days and for 40 nights. He did not eat. He did not take a bite. Now, it might be tempting to downplay Jesus' humanity here. We might assume that Jesus didn't really feel the effects of hunger because he, He's God. And He had the ability to, to, to sort of shut out those feelings of pain. But Matthew will not let us forget that Jesus is 100% divine, yes, but He is 100% human as well. Matthew says that after 40 days of fasting, Jesus was hungry. Now that's an understatement. But it's true. Jesus was hungry. Jesus felt hunger just like you and I feel hunger. Now imagine 40 days without food. It's hard for me to go one day without food and, and not feel grumpy and irritable and hungry and, and have the, 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 the pains of hunger. Imagine the pain he must have felt. The, imagine the physical and the mental weakness. And when he had gone for 40 days and 40 nights without food, then the tempter came. And what was the first thing the tempter did? What was the first thing that he decided to use against Jesus? He tempted him by saying, If you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. Feed yourself. Why not? Who here, me included, who here would have refused such an offer? Well, let's look then at verses 3 to 7. If you are the Son of God. Verse 3 says, And then the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now certainly Jesus could have done this, couldn't He? He turned those, those few loaves of bread and those few fishes into enough food to feed 5,000 people. It's not outside His ability to do this. Jesus has just been declared to be the Son of God by His Father at the Jordan River. And it's as if Satan is saying, since you're the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. You can do it. But you see, Satan is tempting Jesus to use his power as the world uses power, as the world wields power for personal gain rather than for his, his, his father's purposes. Jesus has been in the wilderness for 40 days. He is trusting his father to provide for his every need. Satan is saying, no, you provide for your need. Your father's not going to. 
And so to do as Satan suggested would be to have a complete lack of trust in his father. In chapter 4 of John's Gospel, you remember Jesus is sitting at the well. He's talking to the Samaritan woman. He's amazing her with his knowledge of all that she has done in her life, the numerous marriages that she has had. And while he's there, his disciples return. They've been off somewhere. They come back and they return. They, they, say, they say, Rabbi, eat something. They urge him to eat. And what does Jesus say to them? How does he respond? He says in verse 34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus could have said the same thing here in Matthew's gospel when, it, when, when Satan is tempting him. Doing the will of his Father, even if it means refusing to make food for himself, is food. It is sustenance for Jesus. And when Satan tempts Jesus with the suggestion of turning the stones into loaves of bread, Jesus answers how? He quotes Scripture. In verse 4, he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, which says, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is the Son of God saying this. He is the eternal Word of God. And yet he is quoting Scripture. This is astounding. This should be astounding to you. He could have brushed Satan away. Using supernatural power, divine power. Yet he refutes Satan with his very own word. Now, note what Jesus isn't doing here. Jesus isn't saying that food is not necessary or important. He's simply saying that it isn't all important. Food isn't everything. Yes, you cannot live without food. But what Jesus is saying is more importantly, you cannot live without God's word. Every word that comes from the mouth of God is more important than the bread that you'll put on your table this afternoon. If nothing else, fasting reminds us that man does not live on bread alone. It's a reminder that we can go without it. But at the end of those 40 days, Jesus knew what it was like to physically starve. He probably lost a tremendous amount of weight. He felt the effects. He underwent the effects of starvation. But the entire time that Jesus is fasting physically, He is feasting spiritually. He's feasting on God's Word. He has it in His mind. He knows it. And He's trusting in the Lord. We're the exact opposite, aren't we? We have been blessed in this country by an abundance of food that has never been seen in the history of the world. Your cupboards are more full than the majority of the people in this world that they would have, even even those of us who have the most meager of cupboards. But in most cases, in many cases, I should say, we're starving spiritually. We're fasting spiritually. It's almost as if Christianity in America is fasting from God's Word rather than feasting on it. You see, Jesus knows that feeding on God's Word has priority over filling His stomach. And he will prove it. He'll prove it to himself. He'll prove it to Satan. He'll prove it to his followers that he does not need physical food nearly as much as he needs that spiritual food, God's Word. Well, having failed in this first temptation, Satan, in verse 5, uh, takes Jesus to the holy city, to Jerusalem, and he sets him up on this high pinnacle of the temple. 
He's probably overlooking the Kidron Valley. And Satan decides, well, if Jesus is going to use Scripture, I'll use it too. Fight fire with fire. He says in verse 6, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now Satan here is quoting Psalm, chapter, Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. And here it's as if, as if Satan is saying, you quoted the Bible. Well, the Bible says that God's angels won't allow any harm to come to you. Don't you want to test that? Don't you want to try it out? See if it's true? You see, Satan wants Jesus to act as if God is there to serve His Son rather than the Son serving His Father. Jesus heard the same thing when He was being crucified. Matthew 27, verse 40 says that those who passed by the cross said to Him, If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Save yourself. While Jesus did not answer His mockers while He was on the cross, He did answer Satan. And in verse 7, He said, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now here Jesus quotes Deuteronomy again. Chapter 6, verse 16. It's where God instructed the next generation of Israelites not to behave as their parents had in the wilderness. This, this younger generation, their parents had died off except for Joshua and Caleb. And God, speaking through Moses, is challenging them not to do the same thing that their parents had done. Not to put, their, not to put God to the test as their parents had done when they came out of Egypt, when they grumbled against God and against Moses and said, have you taken us out of Egypt so that we may die here in the wilderness? Satan is challenging Jesus to put God to the test. But Jesus will not even consider testing His Father. Jesus is not dissatisfied with what His Father has provided for Him in the wilderness. God has given Him everything He needs. But in addition, when Jesus quotes this passage from Deuteronomy, He's also warning Satan not to put Him to the test. Jesus, who is the Son of God. You see, Jesus will not put His Father to the test by using His power for personal gain. He came to do the will of His Father. He came to do nothing else. Well, let's turn now and look at verses 8 to 11. If you will worship me. In verse 8, Satan took Jesus to a high mountain. And he showed him all the glorious kingdoms of the world. And in verse 9, he gives Jesus his final test. He says, all these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, this is Satan's last pitch, isn't it? And he does away with subtlety here. <laughs> he wants Jesus to worship him. In his way of thinking, there could be no greater honor than having the eternal Son of God bow down before Him and worship Him. But what is Satan really saying here? What's he saying? God is the owner of everything, isn't He? He's the King of, of the earth. He's the King of the universe. He's created it all. It all belongs to God. Satan has power, but it's, it's temporal power. It's limited power. He is described as, as the king of this world, the prince of this world. And perhaps he does have the ability to give to Jesus what he says he's going to give to him. 
But Jesus knows that the kingdoms of the world have already been promised to him. And the way that he attains those kingdoms, the way that he gains those kingdoms, is how? It's through the cross. It's through his resurrection from the dead. And so Satan, by tempting Jesus in this way, to bow down and worship Him, he is tempting Jesus to circumvent the cross. He wants Him to go around the cross. Satan doesn't want Jesus to die on the cross. That's the last thing Satan wants. Because he knows that Jesus' death on the cross and His resurrection from the dead will be Satan's undoing. He will be ruined. And he's trying to avert his own destruction. Well, how does Jesus respond to Satan's offer here? He says, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Again, he quotes Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6, verse 13. And he knows that the only way to be given all authority on heaven and on earth is to, is to die on the cross. And so, when, after Jesus has died... After he has been resurrected from the dead, when he comes back to, back to visit his disciples, what does he say then? Matthew 27, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Philippians chapter 2, what does it say? That because of what Jesus has done in humiliating himself and coming in the form of a man and dying on a cross and being raised from the dead, that every knee on heaven and on the earth and under the earth, every knee shall bow to Him. Every knee shall come, every tongue shall confess that He is Lord. This is how Jesus will gain the kingdoms of the world. Not by bowing down in worship to Satan. Well, in Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus began to talk to His disciples about His death and about His resurrection, verse 22 says, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen. Peter was saying, You shall never die on the cross. How does Jesus respond? You know. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter, one of Jesus' close disciples. Jesus calls him Satan. Because in that instance, Peter is mouthing the words of Satan. (laughs) He's doing what he can to keep Jesus from dying on the cross. And the irony is that Peter is suggesting Jesus' death on the cross is unnecessary. If Jesus had listened to Peter, it would have resulted in Peter's own destruction. It would have resulted in his own undoing, and his own ruin. If Jesus had not died, if Jesus had not been resurrected, we would all be facing destruction. We would all be without hope. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19, that if Christ has not been raised, and if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, in other words, if we don't have hope in Christ in the next life, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Jesus died, and that was it, we above all are most to be pitied. We have believed a lie. 
It is because of Jesus' death and resurrection that His temptation by the devil has meaning to us. It would be cruel for me to stand up here and preach this passage to you as if it's some sort of instruction manual for how you can resist the devil when he comes to tempt you. It would be cruel. And yet this is how this passage is often preached, isn't it? It's preached often. Many passages are preached often as if Jesus is only our example. Jesus is our example, but only when He is first our Savior and our Lord. If we do not know Him, if we have not placed our faith in Him, He cannot possibly be our example because we have no hope in Him. We have no hope that He will transform us. We have no hope of resisting temptation if Jesus did not die for us on the cross. And we have no hope of resisting temptation if He, did not, uh, if he was not raised from the dead. And we have no hope of resisting temptation if we do not place our faith in Him, if we do not trust in Him as our Lord. You and I have no hope of resisting temptation if all of these conditions aren't met. And if we have not placed our faith in Jesus, then Satan is a roaring lion. He will devour helpless sheep. He prowls. He looks for those who are weak. Well, finally, verses 4, 6, 7 and 10, it is written. If you are a believer, then this passage does offer you hope in times of temptation. Jesus is God. But Jesus used no supernatural power to resist the temptation of the devil. When Jesus was tempted, his response each time was, It is written. Jesus used the same weapon uh, that we have been given, the Word of God. And this is. This Word of God, Paul describes in Ephesians 6, verse 17, as the sword of the Spirit. Now, a sword is a defensive weapon, but it's also an offensive weapon. It's both. You can defend yourself with a sword, can't you? You can, you can go offensively. You can strike out against a person. And God's Word is the same. God's Word defends us against attack. Psalm 119, verse 114 says, You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your Word. It shields us. It protects us. But it is also an offensive weapon. Isaiah 55 verse 11 says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. It is God's word that Paul is referencing when he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 4 to 5, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, the Word of God there, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. God's Word is a weapon. And this is why it is so important for believers in Christ to know God's Word. Our words to other people, our words to ourselves need to be seasoned with the salt of God's Word. We need to store up Scripture in our mind. It is wonderful to encourage children to memorize Scripture because they learn so quickly. It's easy. They learn it. They soak it up like a sponge. And it will stay with them. It will last them for a lifetime. But those of you who are older, you know the older you get, the more calcified your brains become. And it takes a lot of effort. You've got to drill down through the crust 
to get those passages of Scripture to stay in your mind. We know this, don't we? So learn God's Word while you're still young. And those of you, those of us who are older, don't give up if it just doesn't seem to stick. The Word of God is a weapon. And God has given it to us to use. And it's no wonder that Jesus is described in the book of Revelation as having a sharp, two-edged sword coming from His mouth. Jesus speaks God's Word. And it is a sword. And like any weapon, God's Word must be handled with great care. Just because a person quotes Scripture does not mean that they are handling it properly. It does not mean that they are a servant of the Lord. And oftentimes God's Word is misused. Oftentimes it is abused. And it is used to entrap and ensnare. And it's a dangerous thing. And we have to be on our guard against this. Great damage can be done through the misuse of God's Word. You see this in our passage, don't you? Satan quotes Scripture. But that does not mean that he is to be trusted. Just look at the way he uses Scripture. Just look at the way he uses Psalm 91. He tells, it to th- he tells Jesus to throw himself from the temple because God said in Psalm 91 that he would not allow any harm to come to him. But look at the context of Psalm 91. Look at how it begins. What is it about? It's about trusting in God. It's about having him as our refuge and our fortress. Throwing himself from the temple is not trusting in God. It is giving up on God. How many times has Satan used that same lie to entice people to take their own lives? Throwing himself from the temple is putting God to the test. It is forcing God to prove himself. It is not trust. Satan has wrenched this passage out of its context and he has misused it. And there are others who do the same. Satan gives us a great example of how not to use Scripture. But Jesus uses God's Word properly. Each of His quotations from Scripture from Deuteronomy reference Israel's time in the wilderness. Jesus understands that where Israel failed as God's children, God's Son in the wilderness, He as God's true Son must succeed. Jesus understands that these words apply to Him during His time of testing in the wilderness. And each time Jesus resists the devil, He does it not only for Himself. He does it for us. He does it for all of us who will be called the sons of God if we place our faith in Christ. He stands in our place as as our substitute. And unlike the Israelites, Jesus does not grumble and complain against God. He does not curse the day that He was born on earth. And he does not listen to suggestions that this life will be easier if he simply gives in and and disobeys his Father. He does the will of his Father. And that sustains him. That is his food. And as disciples of Christ, as adopted sons and daughters of of God Most High, we are called to the same obedience. And if we believe that Jesus died on the cross and was raised again, we will be able, by God's Spirit to do just as Jesus has done when we face temptation. We can do it because Jesus has already done it for us. All that is asked of you and of me is that we believe in the One 
whom God has sent. Let us join our hearts in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You that we have Your Word. And we thank You that by Your Word, You build us up in our faith. You make us know the way of salvation, the only true way of salvation, which is faith in Christ Jesus. Lord, we pray that You would continue to, to teach us to mold us, to shape us, to cause us to walk in humble obedience, obedience to everything that You have commanded. We ask, O oh Lord, that You would help us to be loving children who seek to do the will of our Heavenly Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.